Father, we thank you that you speak to us, that you reveal yourself to us, and that you include us in your plans. And God, I pray now that you would open our hearts to see how it is that you want us to live as your children. God, fill us with the Holy Spirit, and may we humble ourselves before you in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever known someone who didn't quite live up to their potential in something? I was asking myself that question, and immediately I thought of the sports world, and I started, you know, oh, is that person or, or that person? And I thought, you know what, I, I should maybe point the finger at myself here. And, and you as well. Have you ever thought of a time, or can you think of a time in your life where you didn't quite live up to your potential? For me, I was thinking of my time in cross-country in high school. I joined cross-country my last two years of high school, not because I liked running. In fact, I kind of despised running and, and still kind of do. Um, but because I wanted to get in shape for other sports. But, you know, once, once I joined the team and saw all the other people run, I wanted to compete and I, and I wanted to do well. Um, now, you could look at my cross-country career in a couple of ways. On the one hand, I could, uh, I could say to you, it, it, truth be told, that I was a two-time all-conference cross-country runner in high school. And you can pat me on the back and say, well done with that, Eric. But you could look at it another way and say that I was actually in two conferences. For some reason, our school was in two conferences. One of them had ten schools in the conference. And the way that it works, usually near the end of your season, you have a, a, a final meet, and they pick the top certain number of finishers, whether it's five or ten, and they, they deem those to be the all-conference runners. And in that conference with ten teams, I was nowhere near all-conference. I was, you know, I, I was, I would say, slightly above average. Maybe if there were a hundred, I was like number 47 or something. Uh, but then in the other conference that we had, there were only three schools in it, and the other two schools were just terrible. And, and they, in that conference, they said the top five finishers were, would be all-conference. And both years, if my memory serves me correctly, I finished fifth place in that one year barely nosing out one of my own teammates for that last all-conference position. So, truth be told, I was really, if anything, slightly, slightly above average. My, my times were nowhere near good enough to go on to the next level. But one of the kind of humorous things to me was at the end of my senior season of cross-country, my coach came up to me and said, Eric, you could have been so much better. And I just kind of, inside, I just kind of chuckled because I thought, you're telling me this now? Like, she could be told me that two years ago. But, uh, but he was right, and I knew he was right. Because when you're running cross-country and you're competing, you, both in practices and in the meets, you come, come to this point where you realize, I could push myself a little bit harder and make myself a little bit better here. But when I came to those times, usually I just said, I'm tired and I don't want to push myself anymore. <laughs> And, and truth be told, I was kind of a mediocre cross-country runner, and I settled for that. Now, I, I have a point in telling that story. We're going to talk about our Christian life today. We're going to talk about to what degree we pursue God, and, and whether or not we're settling for mediocrity. We're going to do it by looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're in a, a nine-week sermon series here. We just started last week where we're looking at 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 17. And again, especially at the beginning of this series, I just want to urge you on your own to be reading these chapters of the Bible because you will get so much more from it if you interact with the material instead of just taking my word from it. So 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 17, that's what we're looking at. And we're looking at stories of faith. We're looking at Main, the main characters, and we're looking at their faith or their lack of faith to see how we can learn from them. Today we're going to look at chapter 2. And in chapter 2 we get a look at four priests. 
There's Eli, his sons Hophni and Phinehas, and then there's Samuel. And although Samuel is never actually called a priest in the book of Samuel, I, I believe that he is. I believe that he functioned as a priest. So we're going to look at them. We're going to compare and contrast. And with Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, it's, it's simple. They were wicked. The Bible tells us that they were wicked. And with Samuel, it's pretty simple as well. He was faithful. But with Eli, it's a little bit harder to figure out. He was kind of that, that mediocre guy, that guy who just kind of settled, who, who left a lot to be desired in his role as priest. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through this passage and we're going to investigate matters of faith. That's the first thing that we're going to do, and that'll take kind of the bulk of our time. And then once I've finished walking through it, I want to look at this passage first in light of Jesus, and then second in light of us in the New Covenant and see how it applies to us. Okay, so the first thing that we're going to do is walk through 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 12 and going to the end. And I'm just going to, I've broken it down into several sections, sections here. So I'll just read the verse or verses and then give some comments on it as we walk through. Verse 12, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. We already learned in chapter 1 that Eli's sons were these two guys, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were priests serving at Shiloh. Now, lest there be any suspense here, Eli's sons were called wicked men here. It just says, all right, they were wicked men. And it says also that they had no regard for the Lord. And that word literally for regard means no. It says that they did not know the Lord. What we might say in our day and age is that they had no relationship with the Lord. Obviously, they knew about the Lord. They were priests of the Lord. And it was their duty to go and offer sacrifices to the Lord. But they didn't know him it looks like they were just kind of going through the motions. It looks like they just had a job to do and they did it. They accepted the, the benefits of it, but they didn't have a relationship with the one that they were supposed to be pointing the people towards. Let's read about them, what it says then. In verses 13 to 17, it describes their wickedness. Now it was a practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice and while their meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, Let the fat be burned up first and then take whatever you want, the servant would then answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young man was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Well, again, these verses describe some of the wickedness of Eli's sons. The Old Testament gave specific instructions for how the priests were to get their food. In fact, God said to the priests, I'll give you some of the meat. When the Israelites come to offer their offerings, you, you burn this part, but the rest of it you can keep back for yourselves, and it's to be your food. But the instructions were very specific. First, God got his share, and then the priests took their share. And what we see in verses 13 to 17 is Eli's sons completely disregarding that. The way that they handled these sacrifices was nowhere described in Old Testament law. And, and even if the worshiper protested, so you picture a, a worshiper, and maybe he's traveled for many miles to come, and maybe this is one of the few times in the year where he comes to offer his sacrifice. And he's coming, it's a very spiritual thing for him. And he offers this sacrifice, and then the priest does it wrong. You can picture the, the worshiper saying, hey, wait a second, 
you're supposed to burn that portion first and then take your portion. And, and if they protested, if they said to these priests, hey, you're, you're not doing it quite right, the response of those priests and their servants would say, no, 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 no. If you don't give me what I want, I'm going to take it by force. There were proper ways for the priests to get their meat, and this wasn't it. And in verse 17, we see how God felt about, about all this. We learn that this sin was very great in the Lord's sight. Okay, so that's Hophni and Phinehas, very great sinners. Now let's, as a contrast, let's read a few things about Samuel here, verses 18 to 21. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Isn't that kind of a cute little picture there, a little, little robe for her little son who's a priest? Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. We don't see much about Samuel here yet, but we do see that he's ministering before the Lord. And also what's interesting to me is that we see, Han uh, excuse me, we see Samuel's parents Hannah and Elkanah, once again, acting faithfully. We saw them last week in chapter 1. They were acting as faithful worshipers there. And again, we see them faithfully worshiping God. And my opinion here, and I'm, I'm kind of reading between the lines on this, but I, I think it's fair to say that Samuel very likely learned how to worship God from his parents. His parents gave him to Eli, said he's, he's going to live in the presence of the Lord. So Eli probably took a very significant part of the job of raising Samuel. But what we see from Eli is that he wasn't necessarily a dependable guy to raise children. And what I think happened is that Elkanah and Hannah, the parents of Samuel, took responsibility for raising Samuel and teaching him how to worship the Lord. And, and just a note of application here, we parents have that responsibility to train our children or to disciple our children. In fact, I would say that we parents have the primary responsibility for that. There was a survey done not long ago, and it, it asked children, older children, who were walking with the Lord, and the question was, who were the most influential people in your lives helping you to walk with the Lord? Can you guess who the top two answers on that survey were? Mom and the post... No, the dad. <laughs> and dad. Mom and dad. Number one, number two. Number three was the senior pastor. So I, I have a role in this as well with your children, and I take that role very seriously. I pray for your children. I want to do my part in helping your kids know the Lord and walk with him. But do you know that the, the two most influential people, according to that survey at least, and I think it, it meshes very well with what we see in the Bible, two most influential people in your children's lives, <coughs> mom and dad. May we take that role very seriously as parents to train our children how to walk with God. Okay, it also says in verse 21 that Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And here's where we see one of the contrasts. There's a play on words in Hebrew, Hebrew here. Samuel was growing up in the presence of the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas were growing in sin. They were headed in two very different directions. In verse 18 to 21, we also learn a little bit about Eli. In these verses, Eli looks pretty good so far. We, we see him blessing this faithful family and praying for them. He prayed that they would have more children, and indeed God heard his prayers. So Eli was there acting as a faithful priest, a mediator between God and men. But then in the next verses, we start to begin 
to see both sides of Eli. I want to read now verses 22 to 25. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Eli's sons were acting wickedly. On the one hand, Eli did something right here. He rebuked them for it. They were doing something that was clearly wrong, and Eli called them out on it. And this just speaks to the wickedness, once again, of Hophni and Phinehas. They just seem to have no regard for holy things. So Eli gave a fitting rebuke. He told his sons how serious of a matter it is to sin against the Lord. But on the other hand, look when Eli gave this rebuke. There's a little clue in here. It says in verse 22, Now Eli, who was very old. The problem with Eli's rebuke is that it looks like it came way too late in the game. His sons had been acting wickedly for a long time, and it took him until he was an old man to get around to rebuking them. In fact, it looks like Hophni and Phinehas were so ingrained at their sin at this time that they listened to that rebuke and they said, no way, we're just going to keep on going our own ways. And that's one of many examples in Scripture, I believe, of God giving people over to their sins. The fact is, and this is a, a scary, terrifying thought that, that I think that we should all take to heart, that there can come a point in a person's life when they sin so regularly against God that they, they don't listen to rebuke, they don't listen to God, they sin so regularly that God finally just says, okay, that's the path you want to go on, go on it. And it's not an endorsement, it's a punishment. So I believe that that God let Hophni and Phinehas go down this route, and we'll see where it led for them shortly. But I think that we need to learn a lesson here. If we hold on to sin and refuse to repent of it, we're in danger of facing punishment from God. So if you're sinning, listen to that voice. That's why it's so important, I think, for us to be humble before God and say, God... Would you please show me, if there's something specific that you're wondering about, you know, if you've got this gray area in your life and you're just not sure, is this a sin or does it please God? Go before God humbly and say, God, what do I do with this? Because at the end of your life, you're going to want to look back and know that you made the faithful decisions. And if something's just questionable, boy, I'm not sure that I want to keep on with it. And if something is a sin, I know what I want to do with it. I want to repent of it. Okay, Hophni and Phinehas were sinning and it says it was the Lord's will to put them to death. It actually says the Lord was pleased to put them to death. Okay, another contrast then in verse 26. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Again, Hophni and Phinehas were growing in sin. Samuel was growing in favor with the Lord and with men. And not just with the Lord. He was growing in favor with men. We'll see that next week, that people became to know him as a godly man. And they listened to him. Okay, then out of nowhere, kind of this this man of God comes on the scene, verses 27 to 29. The phrase man of God is basically just a 
a phrase for somebody who delivers a message from God in the Old Testament. So verse 27, Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Okay, so we don't know exactly who this man of God was, but he came with a message for Eli. And it was, a, first of all, it was actually a, a message of the great privilege that Eli had. He, he said, don't you know the privilege you have of your family line being the priests, of you being able to come before me and offer sacrifices? But then pretty quickly, the message turned to rebuke. Earlier we saw that it was Eli's sons who treated the offerings with contempt, but now we learn in these verses that it was Eli too, that he joined in with them, that he fattened himself on the choice parts of the offering. In chapter 4, we learn that Eli was a heavy man, and and in those days, the, the easiest way to get heavy was to eat a lot of meat and a lot of fat. And it looks like that's what Eli was doing, that he was joining in with his sons and taking those offerings for himself, the offerings that didn't belong to him. So not only did he fail to rebuke his sons for too long, he also joined in with them in their wickedness. And then look at verse 30, and I think that this, the, the end of verse 30 here, I think is a key verse in this passage. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. That's the key part there. Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The priests were supposed to honor God, but these three priests, Eli and his sons, weren't. And as a result, God said he wouldn't honor them. God had made a promise to their family line that they would always minister before him. But it's clear now to see that this promise was conditional on them continuing in their faith. Now, there are lots of promises in the Bible And some of them, God's just going to do, regardless of whether we're faithful or not. For example, the promise that God is going to send Jesus again and that he's going to reign as the king. That's a promise, and and we can do nothing to stop that one. Even if we were completely faithless, that promise is still going to happen. But other promises that God gives in the Bible are conditional. For example, the promise of eternal life. If someone rejects Jesus their whole life, they can't claim the promise of eternal life. So we need to receive Jesus by faith and continue in our faith if we want to claim that promise of eternal life. And I think that's what we see going on here. God made this promise to Eli's family, but it was conditional on faith. And because they were acting without faith, God said, no, I'm going to take that from you. And let's see God's message, how he was going to take it from them. Verse 31 through 34. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your family line and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, in your family line there will never be an old man. Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears and to grieve your heart and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. So literally what it says here in verse 31 is that Eli's arms would be shattered. Now they translate that as uh, cut short your strength, but it's kind of funny to me that they use those specific words, your arms will be shattered. 
because in chapter 5, that's what we see happening to the pagan idol Dagon. Remember when the Philistines brought the ark in next to Dagon? They set it next to him. And for two days in a row, Dagon fell off of his stand. And, and one of those times, he broke his arm. So the same thing we see happening to a pagan idol is what God is now saying is going to happen to Eli. We're also told that Eli's family would experience great distress. We're told that they would all die young and those who would survive temporarily wouldn't have it much better. And we're told in verse 34 that his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would die on the same day. Now that might sound harsh to us, like a harsh judgment, but God is merely acting in line with what he had already clearly revealed. Leviticus 22.9 says, The priests are to keep my requirements so that they do not become guilty and die for treating them with contempt. And Leviticus 10.3, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. Hophni and Phinehas dishonored God. God saw it, and he punished them for it. That, that's who God is, by the way. God is the God who sees, and he punishes sin. So we should be clinging to it. That's why we should be repenting of it. And indeed, in 4.11, we see that God did strike down Hophni and Phinehas on the same day. Same, same day. They died in battle on the same day. God was cleansing the priesthood. And let's see his continued plan in verses 35 and 36. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and my mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a crust of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. God had a, had a plan in mind to raise up a faithful priest. And we'll talk more about that very soon. But what it's plain to see here is that Hophni and Phinehas were wicked and God was going to take care of the situation. They were wicked. We don't see all that much about Samuel in this passage, but what we see about him is that he was on the right track. Those are easy to figure out. It's, it's again, Eli that's the difficult one. He's that, that mediocre guy. It's not like he's a, a great villain in this chapter. In fact, we see him doing some good things. It, he's not nearly as bad as he could have been. He even rebuked his sons for being faithless. But on the other hand, he's no hero either. <coughs> he could have been. He could have stopped these things long ago. He could have stood up as a man of faith and demanded what was right. To me, Eli stands as a pretty good representation of what, what we might call the average Christian the mediocre Christian. Somebody said to me oh, about a year ago, we were talking about pursuing God and, and walking by faith. And he said, but everything in moderation, right? And I said, no, not this one. God is looking for wholehearted devotion. And I think it's too easy for us to want to say, oh yeah, you know, I'll, I'll give part of my life to God and you know, when Sunday morning comes around, I'll be fired up and I'll sing the songs with everybody else. But come on, you know, i got a life to live here and i got other things to take care of. But God is looking for wholehearted devotion. And, and what do we learn about how God viewed Eli's half-hearted devotion? He wasn't pleased. It reminds me of Revelation 3.16 where God says, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And one of the lessons here that I think that we need to learn from Eli is no mediocrity, no settling. We seek God with all our hearts. 
daily, even moment by moment, seeking Him. And that affects all our decisions. But we'll, we'll talk more about that a little bit later as we uh, look at how this passage relates to us in the New Covenant. Okay. Like I said at the beginning, I wanted to walk through this passage. That's what I just did. We finished that part up. Now I want to look at it first in light of Jesus and then second in light of us in the New Covenant. Okay, so we're looking at this passage now in light of Jesus. There's a basic question that we should ask ourselves pretty much any time we read the Old Testament. It's how do we view it? How do we view the Old Testament? The simple answer is that we view the Old Testament in light of Jesus. That we know... That, that yes, there's an original context that we need to understand. We need to understand what God meant for the original readers, and we can apply those things uh, to our lives sometimes as well. But also we should be looking through the lens of Jesus and saying, what does it mean for me now, knowing that Christ has come? So much of the Old Testament points ahead to Jesus, and that's what we see in our passage today. This passage is about priests and their faith. So we should ask a question here. What role did priests Well, priests were important in ancient Israel because they were the mediators between God and man. They were the ones, God set it up that way so that if people wanted to go to God, they would go through a priest. Yes, they could have their own personal relationship with God, but so much of the worship structure was set up so that it happened through the priests. It was crucial for Israel to have faithful priests so that their nation would go in the right direction. But unfortunately, in Eli's day, they had wicked priests. That's why God began this cleansing project. And at the end of our chapter, God made a promise to raise up a faithful priest. I want you to look at verse 35 because it's a key one as we look at how 1 Samuel fits into the whole picture of the Bible. He said, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do do according to what is in my heart and mind. Now in light of our immediate context, God did raise up that faithful priest. He raised up Samuel to be that faithful priest to serve the nation of Israel. It says of Samuel in verse 26 that he grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Does that verse sound familiar from anywhere else? Does anybody anybody point out where that one is? In Luke 2, the very almost the identical language used of Jesus. I'll read Luke 2 for you, verse 52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So you see, yes, God raised up Samuel as that faithful priest for that time. But I believe that this is also a picture looking ahead to Jesus, the faithful priest that God would raise up. In fact, one of the ways that we should be viewing 1 Samuel, as you read it on your own, is that there are two really important offices in there, priest and king. And both of them find their fulfillment in 1 Samuel. We see Samuel raised up as a faithful priest and David raised up as a faithful king. But both of those point ahead further to Jesus as the high priest and as the king of kings. So what we see here, I believe, is a a foreshadowing where Samuel is the forerunner of Jesus and Jesus is the faithful high priest. It, It says in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every way yet was without sin. As such, he was able to offer the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He offered himself. There was no other offering that could be made. We can't do anything to get rid of our sin problem. It's only Jesus, and he was able to offer that sacrifice because he was perfect. You see, priests have the job of offering sacrifices. That's what Samuel did. We'll see that throughout his career. And that's what Jesus did. But Jesus was so much better because he offered the once-for-all perfect sacrifice for our sins. 
Hebrews 7.27 says, Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Like I said before, it was so important for the people of Israel to have faithful priests. Praise the Lord, we have a faithful high priest, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sins. He rose again from the dead and now is seated with the Father in heaven to live and to intercede for us, to mediate for us. Therefore, we are continually invited to enter into the presence of God to worship Him and to be changed by Him. Jesus is the way. He is the faithful high priest. He and only He leads us to the Father. Now, I want to show you, as we're wrapping up this part of the sermon here, look at the contrast between Jesus on one hand and Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas on the other hand. And I'm paraphrasing here, but here's what Eli and his son said to God. I give your sacrifice to myself. Then think of how Jesus said it to God. He said, I give myself as a sacrifice to you. Again, Eli and his son said, I give your sacrifice to myself. Jesus said, I give myself as a sacrifice to you. Which one was honoring to God? Which one is the pattern that we should be following? Honoring God and not ourselves. Okay, now I say that on one hand so we can recognize who Jesus is. That's part of why we study the Bible, to learn who God is so we can worship him. But on the other hand, as we move now to our next point where we're looking at how this passage applies to us in the New Covenant, I want us to see how Jesus' fulfillment of this passage stands as an example for us. I was picturing somebody in the congregation at this point saying, well, this is all fine and good. It's, it's good as a history lesson. It's fun to learn about the priests, but I'm not a priest or a pastor, so how does it apply to me? Well, the truth is, and I think many of you, if not most of you, know this, but in the New Covenant, those of us who know God, who know Christ, are priests. First Peter 2.5, we learn that we are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Four verses later, we are called a royal priesthood. The truth of this statement is so stunning to me that I think that we need constant reminding. We who have come to know Christ are priests. Again, we think about how important the priests were in the Old Testament. They were the ones who would enter into the presence of God and and ask Him for things and lead the people in worship. That's what we do. All of us who know Christ, we enter into God's presence and we teach other people how to walk with God. So as we read this passage in 1 Samuel about one faithful priest, two wicked priests, and a mediocre priest, we need to learn from them because we are priests. And then also as we look at this passage in light of Christ, we need to look at him as the perfect example of what it means for us to serve as priests because we are to become more like Christ. I've been reading the book of Ephesians lately in my own personal Bible study and two verses there stood out to me. Ones that really hadn't stood out to me all that much before. But Ephesians 4.24 says that we are created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And 5.1 says be imitators of God. Our goal as human beings is to become more like Christ. To be imitators of God. So as we look at this passage and we see you know 
a mediocre priest, we see wicked priests, but then we also think about Samuel the faithful priest and Jesus the faithful high priest. We know that we are to become more like Christ and we ask God to transform us into that. And Samuel, again, is a pretty good example too. He lived his life basically as a living sacrifice. He was given over to God and and lived out what that, that Romans 12 verse means to be a living sacrifice. That's what we're to be. Everything that we do is spiritual. Again, I want to emphasize that point, that it's not like we have spiritual things we do and then unspiritual, regular things that we do. The Bible teaches us that whatever we do, whether in word or deed, we are to do it all for the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's not just true for those of us who are pastors or missionaries. It's for all of us to realize that everything that we do is spiritual. So what should we learn from 1 Samuel? Well, for one, we need to learn that sin is serious and must be dealt with. It's tragic to see the results of sin for Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas here. It's tragic. And, And it reminds me that we must deal with sin. We must not let it fester. I am now in my 12th year of full-time ministry and I can tell you that I have seen far too many examples of people holding on to their sin and, I, and I've seen the tragic results of it. Sometimes, from my vantage point, I can just, I can just see it so clearly sometimes. And, and what it tells me is that we all need to be humble. If we're, if we're one of those people, if we're, if we're in one of those places where we know that we're holding on to sin, we need to repent of it immediately. Waste no time humbling yourself before the Lord and getting rid of that sin before it's too late, before God gives you over to it. Another lesson here, and I think this might be maybe the key lesson, is that we need to honor God more than ourselves. Again, verse 30, I think, is key, where God says, I'll just read it again, those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. If we want to live rightly as priests of God, we need to continue to seek Him. To seek to give Him glory every day, moment by moment, in our lives. And, and when you get down to it, I think that that's the heart of Christianity. I like to picture this word picture. I've said it here many times before, but that each of us has a throne in our heart. And every single one of us assumed that that throne was created for us. And one of the very first things that we did as an act of our will was we crawled up onto that throne and we declared ourselves as the king or the queen of our own lives. But to be a Christian means that we get off that throne and we recognize Jesus Christ as the rightful king of our lives. We ask him to take his place on that throne as king of kings. And then the word picture becomes us humbly bowing before him and saying to him, what would you have me do? That's how we honor him more than ourselves. Instead of just taking whatever we think we want, like Hophni and Phinehas did, we seek to honor God, giving of ourselves to Him in worship. Again, God is looking for wholehearted devotion. May we be people who humbly seek Him by faith. Because we are priests. And according to 1 Peter 2, as a great passage, by the way, if you're curious to learn more about what it means that we are priests, you might just want to read 1 Peter 2. It's a wonderful section in there. And in, that, in those verses, it says that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. And I was thinking about that this week. Isn't that, 
isn't it kind of strange that we are to offer sacrifices? Because the question in my mind was, didn't Jesus offer the once-for-all sacrifice? Aren't we done with sacrifices? Well, you need to be a little bit careful here with our words because Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. So yes, there is no more sacrifice to offer for sins. Praise the Lord, that's done. But the New Testament often repeats that there are more sacrifices to be given. Sacrifices of thanks and praise. And those are the sacrifices that we as priests are continue to continue to offer to God. To offer those acceptable sacrifices to Him. To declare His praises and to teach others to walk with God. But this all takes continual faith and effort on our part. I was uh, emailing Garland. Is Garland here? Or did he step out, maybe? Oh, there he is, yeah. Garland, can I talk about our, our email this week here about the word intentional? We, Garland says that intentional is a new word and just young punks like me use it. But uh, I say that uh, we need to be intentional in our lives about seeking God, seeking to honor Him daily. And, and Garland said, that's a new word, so what does it mean? Well, I, I, I explained it to him and I said, Garland, what word would you use? And he said, well, people in my generation um, would maybe use the word purposeful. That, that we are to, on purpose, as an act of our will, seek to honor the Lord with what we do. So whether you call it intentional or purposeful, I don't care, but uh, when I'm around you younger folks, I'll use the word intentional. So. <laughs> and the results are awesome. If we are faithful as priests, God will bless. We'll see that as we go into the next few chapters with Samuel, that Samuel lived in the blessing of God. Because I think God's blessing was on his ministry. Same thing with Jesus. Through his, his life, death, and resurrection, he secured eternal blessings for us who walk with him. And we can live in the blessings of God both now and forever if we honor him. But we need to do that by faith. So, so here's my big idea for the day. If we want to live in the blessings of God, we must continue to be faithful. If we want to honor God, we need to continue to seek him intentionally on purpose. Now let me use an illustration of this. I believe that God is blessing our building project that we're doing. Many of you may not know this, but just this week we got the bids back. We had three contractors in in town that we were asking them to bid on the remodeling part of our project. We were bracing for it to cost $310,000. So on on Thursday the elders got together and we were praying and and we were saying, you know, what if it's $500,000? We, we just didn't know what the price tags were going to come back as. Uh, and, and my response was, well, you know, it's God's project. So whatever the number comes back as, it, it's God's project, and he can do with it what he wants. Well, later that day, we got the bids back, and two of them were at $226,000. So a savings, you could say, of $84,000 from what we were preparing for. And it just, you know, I was just grateful when I got those. Uh, in fact, the, uh, our architect, who's kind of our project manager, he's also an elder at an evangelical free church, but he's, before he told me the numbers, he said, did you by chance have a large group of people praying for you today? <laughs> I said, well, you know, the elders did get together. He said, well, it worked. Uh, I believe that God's favor is on this building project. What does that lead us to think next then? So we just kind of rest back and say, oh, God's going to take care of us. I think it means that we pursue him even more. If we believe that God is leading us to do this, we seek him all that much harder to figure out what his will is. And I use that example of a building project as just a small example of something much greater. 
that we as a church, we as the people of God, the body of Christ, need to continue to seek God's will daily, moment by moment, so that we know how to honor Him and that we know how to live in the center of His will. We don't just rest on our laurels. We keep seeking God every moment of every day. It affects everything we do. It affects all the decisions we make. It affects our purpose in life, our direction in life. But we have the privilege, through Christ, of knowing God and serving Him as priests. Let's be faithful in that job. Let's honor God in that. Would you pray with me? God, we're grateful for the wonderful blessings that we get from knowing you, from being your children, and from living in the center of your will. And God, we continue to ask for the strength and the humility and the wisdom to keep walking with you. That God, above all else, that we would honor you. And God, it's so easy for us as we walk through our lives to seek to honor ourselves. But God, I pray that you would train us not to do that but they would, we would seek to give you glory. And I pray that as priests, we would train others how to do that as well. God, we do pray for your blessing on us, on our building project, on our lives, on our families, on our ministry. But God, we know that comes as we seek you and as we humble <coughs> ourselves before you to honor you. So God, in closing here, I, just, I pray that we would be people who honor you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.